My name is Maggie Freeling. I'm a journalist and producer, and this is Unjust and Unsolved, a podcast about people who I believe are wrongfully incarcerated for crimes that are actually unsolved. You've surely heard stories like these on the news, but the thing is, the ones you've heard about barely scratch the surface. The Innocence Project gives a conservative estimate that about 20,000 innocent people are currently locked away in U.S. prisons. After reading some of these stories, I felt compelled to do something. So I sent 20 letters to people who are locked up despite evidence pointing away from them. Some responded through mail, some emailed, and some called me on contraband cell phones. But all wanted their stories to be heard. So I left my public radio job and decided to do just that. In each episode, I speak with those people, their loved ones, supporters, and lawyers, to shed light on how they wound up incarcerated for decades, despite the evidence, and how that means the crimes they were convicted of are still unsolved. This week, I'm telling the story of John Adrian Velasquez, or JJ, as his friends call him. John Adrian Velasquez is doing hard time at Sing Sing. He's convicted of killing a retired New York City police officer. On the afternoon of January 28, 1998, retired NYPD officer Albert Ward was shot dead in Harlem, New York. An ex-cop who ran a gambling den gunned down during a robbery. Despite no physical evidence, an alibi, and the disparity between appearance and race of J.J. and the suspect, J.J. was identified in a lineup as the shooter. Velasquez, then 21 and a father of two, was arrested after witnesses picked him out of a lineup as the gunman. He was arrested and sentenced to 25 to life. He's been in prison ever since. Back now with a murder mystery and a man locked away for 25 to life for a crime he swears he didn't commit. Convicted based largely on eyewitness accounts. Critical eyewitnesses have since recanted their testimony that J.J. was the shooter. And credible tips have come in as to who the real shooter is. The case also has DNA evidence, but it's not J.J.'s. So why is J.J. still in prison? And who did kill? Officer Albert Ward. We'll get to that after this. JJ was one of the first cases I learned about. I was looking for wrongful convictions in New York since I live in Queens. JJ popped up and I was immediately drawn to him. The crime took place in Harlem, where I was working at the time, and the murder was just one block from my office. When JJ wrote me back, I felt an immediate connection. This is one of the things he said. Quote, my fight against wrongful convictions is bigger than me. This is a lifelong commitment. I have seen too many lives destroyed. Children, mothers, sisters, brothers, wives, etc. Communities are directly impacted by these travesties of justice. I can go on all day, Maggie. This is my life. For now, I'll spare you the eye strain. I resonated with that and was compelled to go see him in person at Sing Sing Maximum Security Correctional Facility, where he's been for 22 years for a crime the evidence suggests he did not commit. JJ was born in Manhattan in 1975 to his mother, a union organizer, and his father, an Amtrak police officer. He lived in Brooklyn the first few years of his life, and eventually he landed in the Bronx at 16, where he lived and had a family until his incarceration. JJ was described as a fun-loving, popular guy. Are we starting on rolling? We're rolling. Yeah, okay, just give me, I didn't know that we were rolling. So it's fine. That's totally I'm kind of used to this stuff right here. Yeah, you do a lot of media, don't you? Yes, I do. 
JJ is now 44. We're sitting at a table in an outdated conference room inside Sing Sing days before visitation was cut off because of COVID-19. Before JJ came in, they had him waiting over two hours in the freezing hallway for us because security took so long for us to get through. Sing Sing has a dark reputation for housing and executing some of society's most notorious criminals, including Albert Fish, serial killer, child rapist, and cannibal. Long before Hannibal Lecter, fictional cannibal, there was a man the tabloids labeled both the gray man and the werewolf of Wisteria. He was a true life cannibal, a living monster. The prison is almost 200 years old, built in 1825, and I have to say, it looks like it. Even though it's located in a beautiful town with a waterfront view on the Hudson River, the prison is ominous, dark, clammy, absolutely chilling. I'm shivering as I sit across from JJ, who told me it's actually warmer inside than usual. Where would your life have gone? What were you doing? What were your hopes and dreams like before any of this became anything in your life? Well, it's a good question. And I don't want to be disrespectful, but it doesn't even matter anymore what I would have liked to be or who I would have liked to have been doesn't matter because that dream was shattered the minute I got arrested. On the afternoon of January 28, 1998, a man walks into an illegal underground gambling spot in Harlem, New York on 125th and 8th Avenue. The spot was owned by retired NYPD officer Albert Ward. The man places his bet at the gambling spot on a piece of paper. He hands it in and then leaves. Shortly after, he returns with another man. And that's when witnesses report hearing something along the lines of, this is a stick up or put him up. The men then bring about six people into the back room and tie them up. At this point, Officer Albert Ward tries to stop them. Evidence suggests Ward fired at the men first, who then fired back. Witnesses say it's possible Ward hit one of the men as they saw him stumbling at the top of the stairs on his way out. The bullet that struck Ward hit his face and killed him almost instantly. In a New York Times article from the next day, people who knew him describe Ward as a, quote, beautiful person. He grew up in the area and owned many shops and bars in the neighborhood, including a Baskin Robbins. A neighbor told the Times if someone needed money, he would help. And sometimes he even bought people clothes when they got out of prison. Ward was 59 when he was murdered. Afterwards, the NYPD put a bolo, police speak for, be on the lookout for two suspects, a shooter and an accomplice. The accomplice was described as a dark-skinned black male. The shooter was described as a light-skinned black male with long braided hair or dreadlocks. At this same time, new father J.J. Velasquez was a 21-year-old living with his girlfriend and two young sons, John Adrian Jr. and Jacob. Jacob was just born a month prior to this incident. So January 27th, 1998, where were you? January 27th, 1998, I was actually on the phone with my mother. So January 28th is my father's birthday. J.J. told me at this same time Albert Ward was shot and killed, he was at his house in the Bronx, on the phone with his mom, discussing his father's birthday. His father had died 10 months prior. The following day was his birthday, and J.J. wanted to go see his headstone. Because they had just put up his stone, I never got to see his stone. And after that, we were going to go to the apartment and pray. And that turned out to be like 
a 74 minute conversation. And it just so happens, we didn't know this right away because if you asked me where I was, you know, on any particular day during the time that they're talking about this crime commenced, I would tell you that I was home. But how do you prove that you're home? It wasn't until a couple of months in, while I'm on Rikers Island suffering, that my mother's like, listen, your lawyer's found it. I said, found what? Found evidence that, that there's an alibi. We have proof that you were home. You were on the phone with me. So it was phone records? Like yeah, that. it was phone records that they were able to find that substantiated the length of our conversation. And then it brought it all back. And it was like, wow. So how did JJ wind up being identified as the shooter? It just so happened that J.J. had been arrested a few months earlier for drug possession. He was never convicted, though. But police still had his mugshot on file. So when they interrogated witnesses in Ward's shooting, they showed them an array of mugshots that included J.J.'s picture. One witness said J.J. looked like the guy. And that was it. Police sent word that they wanted to question J.J. And when J.J. heard that, he voluntarily went to the police station to speak to them, thinking he'd clear this all up in just a few minutes. Yeah, so I turned myself in February 2nd, 1998. Part of the reason why I turned myself in is because my father was a police officer who raised me to believe in a system. And to just think about how the system treated me. You know, my father served this country as a veteran in the Army and then as a police officer when he came out of the Army. And this is what he gets as retirement benefits, that 10 months after he passes away, you set his son up. This may be a tough question, but do you almost feel it was like a blessing that he died before you got locked up, before he could see this happen to you? Um, actually, I've never looked at it like that. It's interesting that you would say that. But um, I think it's the opposite. Uh, I believe that if my father was alive, this couldn't have happened to me. I believe that my father as a standing police officer would have been, would granted a lot more respect and would have said, you can't do this to my son. The eyewitness who chose JJ's mugshot was a man named Augustus Brown. Brown says that he only saw the shooter for a few seconds, but he felt pressure to pick someone out of the stack of mugshots police showed him because if he didn't, he says the police told him they would pin it on him. Here's an interview with Augustus Brown with Dateline. He told us detectives were pointing the finger at him as a suspect. They threatened to charge me with conspiracy to this, saying that so I'm the, So the police were going to say you were part of this robbery? Yes, saying that, that I set this up for them to come in and rob it. Right. Which you didn't do. No. And me having that on my record, they, young black man, I ain't got no job, I'm not in school enough. Right. So... That's what came about me pointing the finger at somebody. If that's true, Velasquez's lawyers say his testimony cannot be believed. So Brown said the police were going to pin the murder on him if he did not point the finger at someone else. Brown was also a drug dealer and had 10 bags of heroin on him when he was brought in for questioning. So he thought he would go down for that too. The 20-year-old was terrified of the threats and going down for the murder. So he pointed at J.J., said he thought he might have recognized J.J. as someone from the neighborhood. And that was that. He picked him as the shooter. That's when J.J. was contacted. Once at the precinct, the police asked J.J. if he would enter a lineup, which, knowing he was innocent, he agreed to. I walked into a precinct and volunteered for a lineup against my lawyer's, you know, advice. He said, just go home. 
let them do their job and then we'll do ours. And I said, no, I didn't do this. I'm going to that lineup. If I go in that lineup and I don't get picked, I'm free, right? He said, yeah, but if you get picked, you're going to jail. I said, I'm going to that lineup. And um, that was the last choice I made as a free man. JJ is a light-skinned Latino male. At the time, he had short hair and a very thin, soul-patch kind of mustache. Witnesses at the scene described the shooter as a black male, light complexion. And maybe that doesn't seem like a huge jump from a light-skinned Latino, but the description went on to say the guy had a beard, mustache, goatee, and braids or dreadlocks. Eight of the nine witnesses gave the same description. So a sketch was drawn and put on a wanted poster, and this sketch looks nothing like JJ. I mean, it's not even a close resemblance. Plus, three independent sources who saw the poster said the sketch was of a man named Mustafa. This sketch was plastered all over Harlem, a place where the streets talk and the cops were listening. Tips came in from all directions, but one name kept coming up over and over again, Mustafa. Remember, the cops wanted two men, the shooter and the accomplice. The accomplice was the darker-skinned one. He was eventually identified as Derry Daniels. Daniels totally fits this profile. He had 14 prior arrests and 12 convictions for drugs, assault, and robbery. Daniels was charged with the murder of Albert Ward and eventually wound up pleading guilty to robbery. He was sentenced to 12 years. And it's worth noting, though, that Derry Daniels, in all of his dealings with police, never mentioned J.J. as being involved in the crime. There's no evidence Daniels and J.J. even knew each other. And more than that, Daniels' brother told a private investigator that J.J. was indeed a stranger. His brother only implicated him to get a lesser sentence. This was the only time Derry Daniels implicated J.J., a year after the shooting at his own sentencing. He didn't even testify at J.J.'s trial. When reporters tried to ask Daniels about J.J.'s claims of innocence after Daniels' release, because remember, he got out years ago thanks to that plea deal, he refused to talk about the case. Period. Me being here for this crime makes absolutely no sense whatsoever. No sense whatsoever. The physical descriptions do not match. The physical evidence is not there. Nothing makes sense. The physical description was a light-skinned black male with dreads or braids. Yes. Hair that you did not have. Absolutely. You're not a light-skinned black male. No. How did this happen? How, How did, did you get happen? here? How did you get here? <laughs> when we answer that, Maggie, I think I'll be leaving here. Um, unfortunately, that's a question I can't answer. I don't know how I got here. So after Brown selected JJ, a chain of events happened. Now with an ID, the rest of the eyewitnesses who were at the underground gambling spot when Albert Ward was shot were asked to come in and view a lineup. This was the lineup JJ volunteered for. JJ was in the lineup, a light-skinned Latino male next to other filler men, none of whom were black or even remotely resembled the sketch that had been drawn of the shooter, a light-skinned black male with dreads. Actually, JJ says two of the guys looked like white men, which, if anything, would make JJ look darker than he was. I saw this picture, and it's true. We'll put it on our social media, our Facebook and Instagram, so you can see for yourself. 
JJ was then picked out by two other witnesses after one chose someone else first, and the other was unsure about their choice. Based on this, JJ was charged with the first-degree murder of Albert Ward, even though the only evidence police had was shaky eyewitness IDs. And make no mistake, eyewitness identification should always be second-guessed. The Innocence Project estimates that 71% of the nearly 400 wrongful convictions that have been overturned by DNA evidence involved mistaken eyewitness IDs. The brain is malleable and impressionable, and it is surprisingly easy for police to make subtle suggestions in mugshot spreads or suspect lineups to cause witnesses to finger the wrong person. But luckily, JJ had an alibi. Remember the 74-minute phone call with his mom that placed him at home at the time of the murder? Well, at trial, the prosecution brushed the record of this call off as just the girlfriend on the phone. JJ had proof someone had made a lengthy phone call from his house to his mom's that day, but there was no way to prove it was him. He was ultimately convicted of second-degree murder. JJ has been in prison ever since. I've been fighting this conviction for all of 22 years. When you're innocent and you're fighting your case, you're at like the worst position to, to represent yourself. I don't know what happened. So now I have to go off of what they claim are facts. And I already know aren't the facts because you said that I did it and that's wrong. So if we're starting from that, then what else is wrong in this picture? And how do I defend myself if I don't know what's right? Coming up, if JJ is innocent, then who killed Officer Ward? But first, I'd like to thank Dylan Wood, who runs freejohnadrianvelasquez.org. He was one of the first people I spoke with for this, and the website is full of information I used for this case. Another thank you to Sean Gallagher, a documentary filmmaker and editor who's been working on a documentary about JJ for five years. And of course, JJ's legal team, especially Sam Shapiro from ECBA Law in Manhattan. Hey, y'all, before we continue, I want to tell you about another podcast we love called Without Warning. My friend, I can't find her. From the time I went to sleep to the time I went away, there's nothing. It's just a void. My baby girl's life was taken by unscrupulous individuals who may have done this before, but will probably do it again. Because obviously they, they knew something and they hadn't reported anything. Lauren Agee found dead Sunday in Center Hill Lake. And he said, I need to tell you that your daughter didn't make it. She's dead. Follow this season of Without Warning, the Lauren Agee case by Sheila Wysocki on iTunes, Stitcher, and Google Play. JJ has been fighting for his freedom from behind the walls of Sing Sing Maximum Security Correctional Facility since 1998. I'm here at Sing Sing with JJ, and he's telling me he's had a lot of time to think about what happened. You know, when I first came through, I thought I was that anomaly. I thought I was like, how could this happen? You know, my father was a cop. I'm being accused of, you know, taking a cop's life. It doesn't make any sense. Putting innocent people in prison for crimes just so that they can say that there was some level of finality to it, right? So a cop was shot in broad daylight in Harlem, and somebody has to go to prison because we can't have people believing that people can just do this and get away with it. Yet Albert Ward's killer's still out there victimizing people. 
We have no idea how many victims have suffered as a result. But new evidence and witness recampments could help him regain his freedom and figure out who the real killer of Albert Ward is. In 2004, JJ's legal team interviewed Augustus Brown while he was incarcerated at Rikers Island. Remember, Brown is the heroin dealer who picked out JJ's mugshot. Brown says he was actually high on drugs when he identified JJ and was high on drugs when he testified. He says he really wasn't sure who the shooter was, but was afraid to say anything because he thought the police would implicate him in the murder. So he had to stick with his story. Then another of the three witnesses who identified JJ also recanted in a sworn statement to JJ's lawyers, saying they too felt pressure by the police to pick someone out. The third expressed serious doubts about picking the right person and said he even testified against JJ, knowing what he was doing was wrong. But again, police pressure convinced him to testify. The lead detective in JJ's case was Joseph Latrenta, and the lead prosecutor was Eugene Hurley. The case against J.J. is also lacking any physical evidence. Witnesses say they believe Albert Ward shot and wounded the man with a gun. They say while fleeing, the shooter left a blood smear on the stairs. Tests from back then found the smear was not blood, but testing has evolved drastically since then. However, I work in Harlem, right next to the crime scene, and unfortunately, the building was demolished. So there's no chance of doing further testing on the smear. But regardless... J.J. does not have a gunshot wound on him. Further, there's actual evidence pointing away from J.J., the betting slip, the piece of paper the shooter used to place his bet. Remember, this was a gambling spot. The slip was collected as evidence and was recently tested for touch DNA. A DNA mixture was found, and from the partial profiles the independent test found, they concluded that J.J.'s DNA was not on the slip. Since witnesses say the shooter placed a bet on this slip and J.J. didn't touch it, it stands to reason J.J. is not the shooter. So who did touch the slip? Who did kill Albert Ward? Unfortunately, at the moment, in New York State, touch DNA cannot be entered into CODIS, the national DNA database used by law enforcement, to get a match. Because ironically, the worry is that it will convict innocent people since the profiles are partial. They're small. So the only thing it is good for right now is eliminating JJ. But that's not as easy as it sounds. With these kinds of cases, it's much easier to be convicted than freed. To be exonerated, it's likely law enforcement is going to want the real shooter. And as I mentioned earlier... Three independent sources said the man's name was Mustafa. But any investigation into Mustafa seems to have been dropped as soon as Augustus Brown ID'd JJ in the photo array. However, there are credible leads as to who Mustafa is. Now, I don't want to name names in this podcast unless they are widely broadcast, which these names have not been. But JJ's website does list the names of these credible leads, including one name in particular, which was recently discovered in a police report that the prosecution never turned over to the defense. Velasquez's lawyers announcing that three months ago, through a source, they received an old police report with information that proves his innocence. A police report they say was withheld by the Manhattan District Attorney's Office before the trial. The newly discovered police report was mailed to NBC producer Dan Slepian. 
My name is Dan Slepian. I'm a supervising producer at Dateline NBC, where I have worked for about 25 years. Dan has covered many alleged wrongful conviction cases and has helped free five people with his reporting. He has been covering JJ's case for almost two decades now. He met JJ while visiting someone else he was covering in Sing Sing. And JJ also asked him to cover his case. He, at that first meeting, challenged me to find him guilty. Don't try and prove me innocent, try and prove me guilty. And that kind of intrigued me. And so over the course of now 18 years, I've come to learn this case intimately. And, you know, I, I have been, um, people look at my work sometimes and say, you know, you're an advocate for the wrongfully convicted. I'm an advocate for the truth. Um, you know, it, and so when I look at the details of JJ's case, I can come to no other conclusion other than his innocence. He challenged me to investigate his case. I continued to be skeptical. I looked into it for nearly 10 years before I did a story for Dateline. In 2012, Dan's investigation into JJ's case aired on Dateline. And afterwards, things completely changed. It was after that, 15 years after I first heard about his case, after I produced a story for Dateline about it, I get in my mailbox at home, this yellow envelope without a return address with 40 police reports that had never been turned over to him unredacted. And to me, one of them was a bombshell. This is the missing police report that changed JJ's case. It's an interview with JJ's alleged accomplice, Derry Daniels's father. Daniel's father said the night before the murder, his son, Derry, had a friend over the house. He described the friend as a light-skinned black man with braids. This is the night before the murder. The next morning, when this robbery happened, nine eyewitnesses said the shooter was a light-skinned black man with braids. If Daniel's father is right, this statement is exculpatory evidence Prosecutor Hurley did not hand over to the defense. And what's amazing about that report, actually, is that the defense attorney prior to J.J.'s trial, wrote a letter to the Manhattan District Assistant District Attorney who tried the case saying, we are missing 40 police reports. Please turn over these reports. And they list them. And the Assistant District Attorney takes the time to go through them and writes a letter back prior to trial saying, we've reviewed your request. These are the reports that you suggested. Police report number this, police report 64, police report 63, police 93. And takes the time to say, we're not handing these over because they're unimportant. They're not discoverable. We don't need to turn them over. There's no important information in here. And took the time to write on this, even on this one, police report number 93, interview with the co-defendant's father. We're not turning it over because that was up to the prosecutor because that's the power they have. Not only would that have pointed away from J.J., but it could have helped finger Albert Ward's real killer because... That's what's at stake here. When someone goes to prison for a crime they didn't commit, it means they lose years of their life, sure, but it also means the real killer went free. And as far as JJ is concerned, withholding a statement like this is almost the same as planting a gun on somebody or coaxing a witness to lie. It is all designed to get a conviction, not the truth. I am not an advocate for individual people. I am an advocate for the truth. All I care about is the truth. And unfortunately, what I've seen time and time and time again is that the system doesn't care about the truth. And so despite the roadblocks he's faced, 
Today, JJ has accomplished so much from the inside. And because of it, he's able to live in the prison's honor block, a small section of the prison with more privileges. JJ has a bachelor's degree in behavioral science. He's been in leadership positions for a number of committees, including the Family Reunion Program, the Youth Assistance Program. He's received a certificate of recognition for outstanding community service from a New York State senator. And he recently did a TEDx talk. My name is John Adrian Velasquez. Friends and family tend to call me JJ. Feel free to do the same. I want to redefine what matters by talking about the powerful connection between better choices and better lives. This talk is not about me, my case, or my children. This talk is about us. This talk is about how we can come together collectively to overcome our trauma and turn it into triumph. This talk is about us and how we can invest in our future by raising the caliber of our communities. This talk is about us taking control of our lives and making choices matter. At some point, you have to just separate what you're going through from reality. And I don't know how I was able to do it, but I had done it for a long time. But in the midst of that, I kind of lost myself too. Like I realized that I was like absent in my children's lives. Like it was like, while we're on the visit, I'm playing a role that I'm all right in here and everything is fine and I'm asking you about school and everything else. But when I go back into that cage, I'm becoming the person that they're treating me like, which is an animal, you know? And it was hard to separate that. But my mother, my mother taught me something. And what she said was, you have to grow where you're planted. And it doesn't matter what they do to your body. You have to keep your mind healthy. And I really just start to look at my situation and um, I kind of get lost. There's a couple of times where family have wondered, you know, where's JJ? I stop calling, I stop writing. But it's because I'm dealing with myself and there's a lot of uh, pain in there. And I don't want to share that pain. Instead, he not only fights his own wrongful incarceration, but he fights for others too. He told me that when he first entered prison, he thought he was the only guy that was wrongfully convicted. But as I came up and I started to meet people, I started to realize, wait a minute, this guy's innocent. And at first, you know, you would look at it and you would say, is, is he really innocent? Well, that's the saying, right? Everyone in prison's innocent. Right. But then you really start looking at it and saying, like, you know what? This is happening. And it, and it happens at alarming rates. And I've been in facilities with five and 10 other innocent men. I would say that wrongful convictions is America's worst nightmare and possibly America's most heinous crime. How is it that you as a member of law enforcement can intentionally design a conviction of somebody who doesn't belong in prison? That is disgusting. Four years ago, the Manhattan District Attorney's Office reinvestigated JJ's case with its Conviction Integrity Unit, and they decided there was not sufficient evidence to prove his innocence. But Dan Slepian doesn't buy this because he said 
the unit allegedly reinvestigating did not even speak to J.J.'s alibi witnesses. His mother and his girlfriend. If you're doing an objective review of a case, no matter who you are, don't you want to talk to everybody? Don't you want to talk to his alibi witnesses to see if they're lying? Why would they not talk to them? Is that a thorough reinvestigation not to talk to his alibi witnesses? If I was doing a story, I wouldn't be able to put it on the air. I can't do a story and say he told me why he's innocent, but I didn't go check out why he's guilty. Or here's why he's guilty, but I didn't check out why he's innocent. You check out everything. I was I was pretty surprised when I didn't see an interview with them. And I spoke to his mother and I called her. I said, were you ever interviewed by anybody from the Menendez office? She goes, no one ever called me. So it, it indicates to me, just based on the facts, not my opinion, not my emotion, just based on the facts, is that it indicates that there's some sort of bias if you're not interviewing people that, are going to potentially be helpful to his side. When you look at an official record and it's a, in a court filing and a judge's order says the Manhattan District Attorney's Office did a thorough reinvestigation of the case and found no reason to disturb the conviction, that becomes findings of fact by law. The judge has said in the order, the Manhattan District Attorney's Office did a thorough reinvestigation and therefore it is officially the truth. But if you scratch the surface a little bit, you realize, guess what? It's not exactly the truth. Their job is to find truth. It's not to protect convictions. That unit has overturned 12 convictions in the past decade, only one of which was a murder case. Ten of those 12 convictions involved false accusations and perjury. When you have a conviction integrity unit, as the name says, integrity unit, that says, we're going to take another look at this case. We're going to reinvestigate it. You would think that that body, that official authoritative authoritative body, is going to take an honest, objective, thorough look at the case. Not, is our conviction good? It's, who killed Albert Ward? And did this guy do it? I just have to say that this is a systemic issue. This is much bigger than the Manhattan District Attorney's Office. I mean, this is a systemic issue around the country. And I've been investigating cases of alleged wrongful convictions, claims of wrongful convictions for two decades. And each one of them that has merit has had the same hallmarks along the way when it comes to the resistance from prosecutors and the system and judges that the system is not built to get people out. It's built to put people in and keep them there. A system that refuses to accept facts and reality. JJ's legal team is pursuing multiple avenues to secure JJ's release, including a full reinvestigation into his case, including DNA testing and reaching out to New York Governor Andrew Cuomo for clemency. Cy Vance, the Manhattan district attorney, is up for re-election next year. It is unclear if he plans to run again, but many progressive contenders have tossed their hat in the ring, and a new DA could mean a new shot at freedom for J.J. I reached out to Governor Cuomo and Cy Vance's offices about clemency for J.J. and have not heard back. J.J. says when he gets out, he wants to help others in his situation. They've actually convicted the wrong guy in too many different ways. Because I'm married to this movement. I can be exonerated tomorrow. They can give me millions of dollars the next week. 
And the next month, I will be in front of the next court helping the next wrongfully convicted man. That is my future now, and that's what matters. It doesn't matter who I was meant to be before, because I know who I'm meant to be now. And I'm on the front lines of this movement. I've helped three guys get out, right? That, not to interrupt, but that is so crazy. You've helped three guys get out, and you are still here. Yes. Um, one of them just came to see me this week on uh, Monday. Who's that? Uh, his name is Johnny Hincapié. And uh, he did 25 years for a crime he didn't commit, the Roseland murder. JJ says he himself also helped Eric Glisson and Richard Rosario overturn their wrongful convictions. Because, as he told me in one of his first letters to me, the fight against wrongful convictions is bigger than him. Because he's seen the lasting damage his incarceration has done to him and his family, and he doesn't want anyone else to suffer like they have. I have two children. Two sons. Two sons. How old are they? Wow. One is 25 now, and the other one is 22. I left them when uh, my son, my oldest son, John Adrian Velasquez Jr., he was three years old. My youngest son had just been born a month prior to this. Do they come visit you? Yeah, um, not as much now. I mean, you know, they're grown and um, things have changed a lot, but the first half of their lives, my mother has brought them to see me every weekend. And it took me a long time to realize that uh, I was depriving them of a childhood because they were spending five days in school and one day in prison. I'm not sure if people can imagine what it's like for the entire, um, the entire process of your family's life taking place in a visiting room within the boundaries of a small area that you have to just basically sit at a table like we are. And that's the basis of the life that you know with your own children. And they had to come to some type of realization like, why can't my father touch money? Why can't my father come to this machine with me? Why can't my father come home with me? So it was very rough. That has rolled over and affected my family in devastating ways. A couple of times you asked me questions about like who was in the audience or who was at the court with when I went for my hearing. My oldest son wasn't at court. He was in a cage like me. JJ's son was most recently arrested and convicted for burglary. He's currently serving his time at Cape Vincent in New York on the border of Ottawa, Canada, over 300 miles from JJ in Sing Sing. And they say statistically that children of incarcerated parents are seven times more likely to be incarcerated themselves. And my son has become a victim of that. And it happened because I was incarcerated for something that I didn't do. My other son, the younger son, thank God, he's never been arrested, but um, he walks around in society on eggshells thinking that incarceration is the family curse. You know, so it, the impact is, is unexplainable and it, and it has so many different layers of pain involved. JJ's mother had a heart attack on what's called wrongful conviction day or October 2nd in 2018. 
JJ thinks it's connected with his conviction. And um, she was diagnosed with cardiomyopathy, which in regular terms is broken down as broken heart syndrome. And I never thought that somebody's heart can be broken. But it's apparent that wrongful convictions has broken my mother's heart. One of the hardest things when I came to see JJ was seeing the torment and sadness in his eyes. If you believe the evidence in this case, you believe his life was stolen. When was the last time you felt a hug from somebody? <sighs> um, because of a lack of that opportunity, we tend to hug each other in here when we embrace each other. Sometimes we have special events like the TEDx event and, you know, I received a lot of hugs that day. And um, those are the special moments in our lives that we're able to really just feel human again. I apologize no, for making you emotional. JJ is up for parole in 2022. He could show remorse for what he is accused of and admit to the crime and likely get out. But he told me he's not about to do that. So why not just say that to get out and fight for it on the outside? It's not going to happen here. Mm-hmm. I can't do it. Because, you know, sometimes you wonder, is it about principle? Like, why would you put yourself through more pain? But um, I can't give these people an opportunity to try to say that about me. It's just not true. I can't let it happen. My children are grown. If I got to spend the rest of my life in prison, I definitely don't want it. I don't believe it, but I can't go in there and do anything else but say the truth and be myself. If you want to help JJ, please visit freejohnadrianvelasquez.org for more information about JJ's case, links to petitions, and ways to contact representatives. You can also find all this information on our website, unjustandunsolved.com. And full disclosure, I was asked to and did write a letter in support for JJ's clemency. If you like this show, please, please, please rate and review. It takes two seconds. And the more people that do this, the more attention and the more likely word about these wrongful convictions will reach the right people. Unjust and Unsolved is produced and reported by me, Maggie Freeling, with editorial consulting from Amber Hunt. For more information and resources, go to unjustandunsolved.com. You can find Unjust and Unsolved on Twitter and Instagram at Unjust Unsolved and join the discussion on Facebook at Unjust and Unsolved Podcast Discussion Group. Unjust and Unsolved is a production of the Obsessed Network. You can find all their shows at ObsessedNetwork.com. Thank you.